he is a big-time Jet fan, Kevin James. I was a running back in high school is that and right? college. This is when you realize the dream is kind of over. When you suck <laughs> at Division Three football. I think this podcast needs more cowbell. Will Ferrell. I also ran into John Elway in the bathroom. Could have, he could have given me a forearm shipper there. <laughs> Could have rammed my head. Larry David. No question I could be an offensive coordinator. Remember the Dan Marino play against the, the Jets? Fake spike. The fake spike? I had that years before. <laughs> <laughs> I don't download many podcasts, but when I do, I prefer the Rich Eisen podcast. Here's your host, Rich Eisen. Welcome to the latest edition of the Rich Eisen Podcast. We are coming to you from the road. We're coming to you from Canton, Ohio, home to the Pro Football Hall of Fame and another great induction weekend that you saw on NFL Network this week with our very own Deion Sanders and Marshall Falk and Ed Sable going in along with Shannon Sharp, Chris Hanberger, Les Richter and um, just an incredible week of events with Richard Dent also going in here. Um, so I figured since... Pretty much the bust room comes alive every Hall of Fame induction weekend. 80 returning Hall of Famers this year. It's like the football version of the night at the museum where everybody comes alive. I figured I'll just sit some guys down and talk some football, talk memory lane, also get their thoughts on uh, the current state of the National Football League. To that end, Jim Kelly, the Hall of Fame quarterback of the Buffalo Bills, will be joining me on this edition of the Rich Eisen Podcast, as will Anthony Munoz, the Long-time left tackle, one of the best protectors of quarterbacks ever to put on cleats from the Cincinnati Bengals. He will join me on this podcast. John Madden, John freaking Madden, the Hall of Fame head coach of the Oakland Raiders, longtime Hall of Fame broadcaster and video game impresario. John Madden will join me on this podcast that will culminate with a stroll down Los Angeles football memory lane with two great Los Angeles Rams from either side of the football joining me in person together. Jackie Slater from the offensive line of the old L.A. Rams and Jack Youngblood from the defensive line. I mean, that guy is is like the Marlboro man in terms of what a look and sound. I mean, is there a better football name than Jack Youngblood? They will join me together on the Rich Eisen podcast here from Canton, Ohio. But let's get started with the all-time Buffalo Bill great. I am here with one of the all-time greats from the Buffalo Bills organization, 2002 class of Canton, Jim Kelly. Good to see you. My pleasure, Rich. 2002, Jim Kelly. I I keep thinking about that, too. And how many years? Wow, I can't believe how quick everything goes. And then all of a sudden you start thinking, how many years ago... It was when I played, that's what, 16 years ago? I mean, 16 years. It seems like it wasn't that long ago, but my body's definitely starting to feel that uh, it was just a few years ago. Is that right? Well, you know, I just had major back surgery, and the next thing on my agenda is probably my neck surgery. So uh, I've taken a beating, but I'd, I'd do a tenfold, ten, ten times again if I had to. What's it like being here this weekend? It's awesome. Um, when you get to see all the guys that uh, you don't usually get a chance to see, and Plus, the era when I grew up, being able to see people that uh, I watched and idolized, you know, throughout the years and, and walking in there and seeing Jack Youngblood, and even, you know, before when, you know, I know Merlin has passed away, but he was probably the, one of the guys that I enjoyed watching and, and, and seeing, and Franco Harris and Bradshaw and some of those guys. And then you get to rub elbows with the, your old, some of your old teammates, James Lofton, Bruce Smith, Thurman Thomas. And, but it's... Um, 
it's not even a dream because I've, I never dreamt that high, to be honest with you. Yeah, I dreamt about playing the National Football League, but I don't, I don't see how you can dream uh, of play, being in the National Football League Hall of Fame. I mean, that in itself, the Hall of Fame, it's even hard for me to say, growing up a little small town in Pennsylvania and making it here and being able to see your childhood heroes uh, right beside you, it's, it's, uh, it's hard to really uh, fathom. Uh, the Pro Football Hall of Fame used to have its ceremony, the enshrinement ceremony on its steps for years and years and years and years and years. And then you get enshrined, and they had to move it to the stadium. Yes, they did. It's Because I guess it was sort of a harmonic convergence, you being from western Pennsylvania, playing for Buffalo, which is geographically sound for a lot of people to come down here. Western New York, western PA, just come right down to Stark County, Ohio. What was that like for you to see this place overrun for people who want to celebrate you and your career? Um, you just, I didn't expect it, number one. Um, you, I know how crazy, wild Buffalo Bill fans are. And also having a, a guy like uh, John Stallworth go in with me. I mean, I was a little boy in my backyard, dressing up wearing number 12, Bradshaw's jersey, thrown to John Stallworth and Lynn Swan as a kid. Now he was inducted with Stallworth. Um, it was overwhelming for me, but probably when I think of that day and that time and back to 2002, one thing pops out in my mind more than anything, and that was having my son there. Um, he was very sick at the time, and uh, I remember when I saw my name name uh, mentioned on TV that I was a member of the class of 2002. I remember sitting in New Orleans at the Super Bowl with my family and my brothers and my dad and having my name called and thinking, you know, wow, this is going to be an unbelievable time. And, and I did make it. But from that day on until I was enshrined in August, um, I prayed every night that my son would be there with me. And uh, as a matter of fact, um, six years ago, yesterday, uh, my son was laid to rest. Uh, he passed away at the age of eight and a half. But that day in itself, having him there, um, it just got chills on my, my legs. Um, was probably one of the greatest moments of my life. And people will never forget that part of your speech, too. I mean, that, that was, how, did you script that, or how did you prepare yourself? Because you knew, obviously, how much it meant. Oh, yeah. you, uh, so how did you prepare yourself for that? Um, it was very tough because um, when I was re- going over my, my speech and trying to find the right words to talk, not only about all the great people that helped me get to that point, but being able to somehow, some way, find a part that was appropriate and uh, that I could really tell people what my son meant to me. Um, I know that what I said, he was my son, my hero, my little soldier boy, um, and it was something that wasn't easy, but it was something that um, I will, you know, it's, it's hard talk, but um, it's a very special time, my, my um in my life that he was there. He was only there for eight and a half years, but you know, he, uh, he's a little boy that will never run out in front of 80,000 screaming fans. And, but my son has already done more than I can ever ask for. He's already saved and changed the lives of thousands and thousands of kids. And, uh, that moment on stage when I was able to recognize him, um, uh, it was a moment I'll never forget. And, and a lot of football fans as well, Jim, because uh, you were so elo- eloquent and, and, and that's part of what this weekend's about is just is. Is, is so many people sharing in the emotions of, pe- of, 
of athletes that they they watched and idolized and rooted for and just to see the raw emotions somebody told me this uh this week that the hall of fame shows the why you play the game yep right because everybody knows oh you play the game for this but this shows why you decided to do what you did every single Sunday or, or Monday night. You know? and, and you start preparing yourself as a little boy with those dreams in your mind of, of you know, playing professional football. And as I stated before, I didn't dream about the Hall of Fame. Um, and when you get to that pivotal point, you have to reflect back on how you got there um, and how many people were involved in you reaching those points. And I've been very, very blessed throughout my life. And really, Rich, if I, I think about it, I really only had, I think, like four coaches. Um, I wasn't like some quarterbacks that, you know, go through five, six, seven in the career. You know, I had in high school, my high school coach, Terry Henry, and then Schnellenberger in, the, uh, in, in college. And then Marv Levy, and of course, I had Jack, uh, Jack Pardee in the USFL, but having Marv Levy there with me. And, and as I look back on that, and having a coach like Coach Levy with me, he's one of the main reasons I'm sitting here today being able to talk to you and in the Pro Football Hall of Fame because he allowed this quarterback to call all of his own plays. He put his job security on the line saying, Jim, it's your offense, go with it. And from that point on, you know, when you look behind you and you have number 34, Thurman right. Thompson, you have James Loft and Andre Reed, and you have on the other line side, you have Bruce Smith. I've been blessed to be surrounded with a lot of great people. And uh, wow, I, I look back and I do, I say wow a lot because um, just everybody that the good Lord has put me around to, to help me get to this point, it's, uh, it's mind boggling at times, it really is. Do you think in, in the NFL you'll see a quarterback call his own offense in the same way that you did? Do you think we'll see? Mm-hmm. I don't think anybody does that in the NFL right now. No, they I mean, don't. Peyton, Peyton Manning would well, be the only one. Clearly, I think. He Outside gets a plays. Him. I think he gets a place from Solomon, but he changes things up so much right. that it's so almost like that. doing the same thing. But right. for me, it was a no, no huddle, fast pace. It, but the thing is, I knew where I wanted Andre Reid. I knew where I wanted James Lofton. I knew where to put Thurman when he was one-on-one with a linebacker, man-on-man, and putting Don Beebe out there, ran a 4-3, and I knew you know, he could get by guys. But in my heart, I knew what I wanted. And I thrived on that fast pace, uh, mm-hmm. having fun, the gunslinger type. I loved that. Um, I remember they did a pullback when I was playing for the quarterbacks, asking them how many would like to have their own, to call their own plays, or would they rather have the play sent in and change it? Okay. The overwhelming result was they would rather have the play sent in but them being able to change it when they wanted to. So like veto power, exactly. basically. And most of them did have that opportunity, but... Too many people just don't want that pressure on them that they have to, uh, they live and die by what you call. But for me, that's just the way I was. Uh, I didn't mind having so-called the world on my shoulders, the team on my shoulders, because I knew I had people around me too. It'd be different if I didn't have number 34 in the backfield well, I mean, and 83 on the outside, absolutely. number 80. Absolutely, and, and a lot of people think Andre should be in the Hall of Fame. He will. He'll get there uh, hopefully this year. Why too. do you think... He, is it because you didn't, you guys didn't win a Super Bowl that he might be the one guy on your team, maybe him and Cornelius Bennett, who are having that held against him by the Hall of Fame voters? Um, I don't really, you know, I'm sure that has a little bit to do with it. But, you know, you look, there's Marv, 
you got Ralph, you got me, you got Bruce, you got Thurman. Andre's stats is right up with the best of everybody, with everybody. But what probably irritated me more than anything, you look at, you got Chris Carter, you got Tim Brown, you got Andre Reid, three of those guys. Right. Three of the greatest wide receivers, I mean, top 10 wide receivers ever, and not one of them made it this past year. That to me um, is, is very frustrating seeing that because you know all three of the number one, they all belong. But to not have one of the three go in this year, I mean, God bless the guys who went in. They of all course. deserve it, trust me, and we all know that. But when you don't put one of those three in, well, if it makes about, it harder for them down, down the road. Jim, if you think about it, 21,000 men have played this game. 21,000. But there's only now 267 I know, guys in that building downtown in Canton. It just, there's only so many slots. So maybe they should throw the doors open a little wider, or, or what's the solution here? Because I think you'd want it to remain as exclusive. Oh, you do. You do. And, and no, I don't, to be honest with you, I don't think they should put any more in as far as year by year. Imagine how long that, those speeches would be then. No, no, please. <laughs> You'd be on here for a while. But uh, you know what I really think they should do? I think they should add four or five um, Hall of Famers to the vote on the voting committee. I think that we should have a voice in that room when names come up. And I'm not just saying because Andre Reid. I'm saying it because I've seen so many guys that I felt, and I'm sure a lot of other people felt that belong in the Hall of Fame. And when you got a guy like also Shannon Sharp, took him three years to get in. I right. mean, there's some guys that you're like, why aren't they in? And I understand it's an elite group, which it should be. But I think that they should have a voice in that room that played the game before, not just reporters and, you know, the older guys that, you know, all these guys were in there where they threw the football a lot, you know. Andre Reid, good example. I mean, the guy played, what, 16 years. He averaged like 60 or 70 catches a year. I mean, you have to look at some of the safeties. He was going across the middle. Steve Atwater, Ronnie Lott, just the name, Dennis Smith. I mean, some of these guys he played against, he got floored, but he, he was consistent. He did his job each and every year. He was on the football field, and he, he, his numbers right, right up there with the top. Do you consider your Bills a dynasty, a dynastic team? It depends on how you, uh, uh, what's your definition of dynasty. Um, you know what I found out, Rich, just by being removed from the game for as long as I have because of the appearances I make, that I've met a number of reporters that have told me I was one of those guys that said, uh, I don't want the Buffalo Bills back in. But now I look back on what you guys accomplished and what you did, that will never happen again. And not only that, I don't think it will. I, don't, I really don't think it will either. And what is so interesting about the four years, you got to understand, not only you got to be physically able to come back year after year after year, but mentally, how do you prepare yourself mentally to go through the whole grind of an uh, offseason hearing it, of another you know, preseason, regular season, then going to the playoffs and then have everybody gearing and gunning for you and then everybody else saying, we don't want him back. The mental approach that we had to take in that locker room would not have been uh, accomplished if we didn't have Marv Levy as our head coach. I guarantee you, because that man knew what to say and when to say it. He knew how to motivate us in a way that a lot of coaches with a kick in the butt wouldn't have happened. Marv Levy knew the right thing to say to get us mentally focused on trying to accomplish that ultimate goal again. And unfortunately, it didn't happen. But being able to, everybody having the same work ethic as they did the year before, to get back to do it four years in a row, sometimes I look and I, I say wow too because it's uh, – it's an accomplishment that I'm proud to say that I was a quarterback of. And, yeah, of course, 
I would have loved to win one or two or all four because I know some people in some people's minds, uh, if you don't win a Super Bowl, you're automatically on that, you know, the, the tier below. But for us, uh, we always walk with our head held up high, our shoulders back and say, you know what, we accomplished something that nobody will ever, ever do before, but it's because of the closeness we had in that locker room. Well, I mean, for sure, there's no doubt that we'll never see it again. Not only just for what you just said, too, but it was just a different time with salary caps yep. and free agency and things of that nature. And, and you know, year, year three or year four, some of your guys that you've even mentioned would be poached or oh. not, not be able to be franchise tagged. Yep, things exactly. That. Totally different times than that. Um, I do have to ask you this one other question before I get into contemporary bills with you. Uh, I've always wanted to ask Norwood, what, what was it like? Did you say anything to him? Certainly years later, that night, what, 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 what can you tell me about that? Um, I probably can't tell you what I said after the game because I wouldn't be able to be broadcast. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm, I'm, just, I'm just, just kidding. Nice. No, to be honest with you, I know that the reason we made it to that Super Bowl was because Norwood had a couple of kicks during the course of the year to get us to that point. Right. Um, it's, just, it's sad that it happened and because that's what Scott will be known for, but in my mind, he won so many football games for us. He was just—he was one of the boys. I mean, he was a, a, a kicker. Yeah, everybody says the kicker, you know, but Scott was a special man, and uh, I will never look back and blame him for that game because, number one, I was a quarterback. Maybe my job was get him closer, score a touchdown instead of field goal. But I knew that where his range was, I knew that anything inside the 50, we had a great opportunity to win. I had confidence in him. I, to be honest with you, when I saw him kick it, I thought it was going to be good. You know, your typical, you know, kicker hooking it in, and it just never hooked in and stayed wide right. But, yeah, there's probably some people are bitter because of it, but um, the majority of our team were, was behind Scott from start to finish. Uh, I can't let you go without talking about the contemporary Bills because you got your you got your Sabres T-shirt on. You're yeah. rocking Western New York right now. You're, you're rocking it. So uh, what do you think? The, I'll go macro first. What do you think the future of Buffalo Bills football is? You're talking long term. Long term. <laughs> do you think? Do you think when you're here for say year sixteen okay. in your return to the Pro Football Hall of Fame as a Hall of Famer that there'll still be football in Western New York? I'll put it this way: You living in Los Angeles will not have the Los Angeles Bills. I'll put it that way. Okay. <laughs> How's that sound? That sounds good. Um, no, you know what, Mr. Wilson, God bless him because he has been able to keep the Buffalo Bills in Western New York when so many people have confronted him and, and, and asked, you know, we could take it here, we could take it there. But Mr. Wilson has been loyal to Western New Yorkers. Um, I can't see it going anywhere. And when that time comes where he or whoever is in charge um, of the bills decide it's time, um, I have people that I know that are willing to step up. I will do everything in my power to make sure the Buffalo Bills stay the Buffalo Bills right there in Western New York. And nothing against Toronto, and I know we, uh, we play some games up there, uh, but uh, it will not be the Toronto Bills. Mm-hmm. It will be, as, as long as I have, if, if I have anything to do with it, right. it will stay in Western New York, and I'll do everything in my power to do that because I am now a Buffalonian. I have my home there. Uh, my son's laid to rest there. I will spend the rest of my life in Buffalo. And I'm going to do whatever I can to make sure the Buffalo Bills stay in that part of uh, New York. Well, it would certainly help if the Bills won some football games with regularity. Because yeah, that would I don't be think, good. <laughs> I honestly don't think we'd be having this discussion if yeah. they were winning games in, in 
not even the same manner, obviously, the way that you won games that, that we've already covered. Win, special. Okay, right. But uh, it, just, it just seems that, um, that if they won, if they had some winning seasons, that this, this idea would, would subside, that, that they would be... I don't know if it would subside, but it wouldn't be talked about as much. I think that uh, they do they do have to start winning soon. Um, they're uh, you know of course you hear all the hisses and boos and things like that. I'm a season ticket holder. Um, I go to the games. I watch it. It hurts to see it. Um, hopefully, Buddy Nix by bringing him in there will change some things. I know that this year's draft on paper. I know it's just on paper looks very very promising um i have a lot of confidence in ryan fitzpatrick i've wa- wa- worked out with him um for a couple weeks with my nephew who is now going to clemson as quarterback and i really for once and this is this is my opinion for once i see a leader i do not think the bills have had a leader at that position for years nothing against the other quarterbacks but i just saw how um he was able to uh, communicate with uh, the players this offseason, watching how he communicated with them, uh, how he took control of the practices during the lockout and what he was able to do. When you see things like that, it makes you feel this is something that the Bills have needed for a long time. And when you see a leader step up like I've seen him this offseason, I think that's what they need. I'm not saying that they're going to go run away and win the AFC East. You never know. I know you always think positive. But it's a step in the right direction, and I think uh, Chan Gailey has done a good job of, of trying to get these guys back on track. So you track. believe in Ryan Fitzpatrick? Yes, I do. You think they can win a Super Bowl with Ryan Fitzpatrick at quarterback? Um, yeah, I do. I, not, maybe not this year. Uh, sure, but it's a process. It, it, you know, I here, but... Here's the thing. When you talk Super Bowl, you've got to look at different uh, aspects of the team. You gotta, do they have a great defense? Their defense is getting better. Um, do what's your competition? They still, you know, Jets are getting better. The Patriots are getting. You're still good. Year, I mean, that's not easy. Well, the thing is, we, when you play teams like that, when you play in the AFC where you have great quarterbacks, you're facing week in and week out. You got to be able to put pressure on them. You got to be able to stop the other teams. We haven't been able to do that. We have not been very good at completing football games. I see a big step in the right direction. Um, of course, when you are a former player, yeah, you always you know, think positive your team can make it there. I don't know if they're a Super Bowl caliber team now, but I know that's what their, their goal is. And if I was the owner, I would definitely be pointing them towards that as an option to get the right players in that we need to make that step. So um, I would love to see it. I don't know if it'll happen this year, but uh, I never count my bills out. I never will. So last question, I know Darius is going to help uh, football, uh, the, the, uh, the team there, but do you think they, they should not have gone quarterback in that situation? Again, I know you believe in Ryan Fitzpatrick, but there was a ton of guys out there who could be groomed yeah. in a similar manner that, you know, where you came obviously from the USFL, but they're still searching for the next Jim Kelly. Maybe he wasn't in this year's draft, but do you mm-hmm. think that that's the way they should go eventually? You know, here's the thing. You as a, a coach or me as an outsider looking in and a guy that, you know, I know a little bit about football. Yes, you do. Um, when you are picking top five, top ten, you better pick something you really desperately need. Do I think that there was a quarterback out there worthy of a top five pick? In my own mind, no. Um, don't get me wrong. Some of these quarterbacks that came out, it was drafted in the first round. I think they're good quarterbacks. But when you pick a top five pick, 
you better be darn sure that this guy's going to be your franchise player, especially at the quarterback position. And for me, if I was picking 25th, 26th, I think I would have looked maybe towards the future and maybe looked harder at a quarterback. But I've been able to watch Ryan Fitzpatrick over the last year, year and a half. I've been able to meet and talk with him. Um, I got to know him. I think I like what I see, but you also need players around you. And I know that's an old cliche that you're not as good as the people you have around you, but it's, it's so true for a quarterback to get to that next level. He's got to have the right system. He's got to have the right people around him. But getting back to your question, um, I think the Bills made the right choice going after some, somebody that can put pressure on a Tom Brady, a Ben Roethlisberger, uh, and Mark Sanchez. Some of the guys that they're going to face twice a year, you got to start with the AFC East. you got to be able to beat those guys. And if you don't put pressure on Tom Brady, it'll be like going out in the backyard playing against a bunch of kids. It really would be. And uh, that's where they had to start. I, and to be honest with you, I'm happy with the draft. I just hope they can stay healthy. That's, that's the main thing. Good to see you, Jim Kelly. It's my pleasure. Thank man. you, Bob. Appreciate no, thank it. you. you got it. Jim Kelly on the Rich Eisen Podcast. I am pleased and honored now to welcome to the Canton version of the Rich Eisen Podcast, the one and only coach, broadcaster, and video game empresario all rolled into one Hall of Famer John Madden. Good to see you. Thank you, Rich. It's great to be here. It's an honor to have you. Uh, Anytime you get a chance to do an interview with a guy with the Red Sox, I've never turned it down. Well, you know what? Uh, I'm just I'm just rocking him for Ed Sable. You know what I mean? This is this is my <laughs> yeah, Ed Sable. Well, no, that's good. This that's, is yeah. that's what I said. You can't turn it down. You know, I've never turned NFL films down. Never, not once. No, never, because you know, I mean, they were so important to football and and the history and. You know, I mean, if you're going to be part of it and you want you know, your say in there, you had, to, you had to be part of NFL films. Were you ever aware that you were wearing a mic when you were coached? No, no, up, I would never you... wear a mic. No, I was one well, of the that... guys that never wore a mic. Why I never, is that? I never saw a coach being mic'd that didn't look stupid. <laughs> in my mind. I mean, that's just me. <laughs> Why would you say and that? Because you say some stupid stuff during the game. I mm-hmm. mean, you know, I was never proud of every everything I said or thought or did or yelled or mm-hmm. uh, anything during the game, and I didn't want anyone else to know exactly what it was. So you yeah. you sat down for interviews for NFL Oh, no, 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 did. I would do. I'd always cooperate, sure. yeah, yeah, with interviews, but but I never, uh, uh, I was never mic'd. Did you ever let them into a locker room to see what uh, your speech was or anything Probably, like no, no. You, you, but you saw- I wasn't a cooperative guy. I mean, I'm... You know, it's one of those things. All these, oh yeah, I used to do. I didn't do anything. I mean, I was, I was one of those. If you talk about Bill Belichick or someone, right? I was, I was that guy. Bill Parcells. I was, I was that guy. Yeah. And, uh, no, I didn't let him in the locker room. You just, yeah, that's where didn't you drew the lines. Didn't, didn't do anything. Yeah, because that's one of the most famous is George Allen. You know, uh, who wore the mic. I don't know if you saw that of NFL films where he I took, and he took he it ran off. off yeah. He ran off yeah. into the RFK. Yeah. You know, uh, a dugout. Yeah. to take it off because he thought it was jinxing him the whole time. Well, see, you know, and people didn't understand that. They kind of made a joke that he thought it was jinxing him. I agreed with him. You know, I mean, I, yeah. I understood. I said, yep, that's, that's George, and that would have been me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and, and with Ed Sable, um, the last person who I, I got this reaction was you when you went to the Hall of Fame. That when it's mentioned that you're going to the Hall of Fame, just like Ed Sable, people are like, I can't believe he's not in there yet. Yeah. I mean, and I couldn't believe that Ed Sable, other people can't believe that. Do you still believe that you're in the Pro Football Hall of Fame, John? I you mean, know, I mean, I think about it all the time. I mean, it's, it's the greatest and, and 
knowing that your bust is there and is going to be there forever. And, and I still believe they talk to each other. And a lot of other people believe that the busts do talk to each other at night. And uh, it's, it's something that, you know, it's a, it's a special fraternity. The, there's not a lot of people in it. And once you get in it, you're in it forever. And, you know, it means so much to come back here. You know, and, it, and sometimes you say it's like a reunion, but it's bigger than re, it's multi-reunions. I mean, because every event that you go to with the Hall of Famers, you usually sit with a different group. So you have, you know, a lot of groups within groups, and, and, and it all goes back to stories like I was just outside talking to Willie Lanier about a goal line play that we used against him, you know, in Oakland and. Yeah, and I mean, it's all those those stories. We were up all night last night telling stories about, you know, Bob St. Clair has stories, John Randall has stories. And it, it just kind of brings everything together and and reminds you what a great game this is. You know, and I think that everyone should should come to the Hall of Fame. Anyone that's a fan of football should come here to Canton and see it and feel it. Mm-hmm. Any player that's playing in the league should be here and come here and see it. You know, because you get the, I mean, the, the feeling of, you know, the history of the game and what it's all about, where it came from, how we got here today. And you just appreciate the people that were before us and then the people that are here now and the class that's coming in now and then the people that are going to come in. And it's just, it's just something that, that, like I say, everyone should experience. What does your bust say to the, you know, I don't know if you're aware, it's, your bust is in the middle of Aikman right. and Reggie White. Right. What does your bust say to those guys every night? Well, uh, I always, you know, I talk to them a lot about the rules, you know. <laughs> Reg, Reggie, you know, you know how, did, how did you do all that within the rules? And Reggie, Reggie was, was one of those guys that, you know, when I talk about him, is what do you think about these defensive linemen rotating? You know, and you see these teams, you know, well, we got eight guys in the rotation. We have six guys in the rotation. Well, if you have one guy who's the best player, this is what I tell Reggie, if you have one guy who's the best player, why would you rotate him? Why don't you leave him in there all the time? Mm-hmm. And Reggie says, that's what I did. <laughs> I said, I know that's what you did. But you don't see a Reggie White. I mean, Reggie White played every down. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, if it was a running down, Reggie White dominated it was a passing down, Reggie White dominated. And you don't see that. You know, they have, you know, maybe it started in baseball, pitch count. Right. And now they have counts. And Reggie always says, you know, when I played, uh, I never had a count. I played every down. And you, you're, it's like you're separating Aikman and Reggie White, those two guys throughout their years together. No, they, but... They were trying to get each other Yeah, 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 they were. But, you know, Troy, one thing... One thing, if you ever ask a quarterback what a defensive lineman does or what he thinks, he wouldn't know, and Troy wouldn't know. And, and Troy says that. Troy shouldn't know. If you're a quarterback and, and you drop back to pass and you look at a defensive lineman rushing, mm-hmm. you're dead. You're dead. The play's over because you take your eyes. You have to keep your eyes upfield. And the minute you bring your eyes down to see a defensive lineman, now you have to feel the pass rush. But, you know, like Troy will tell me when we're talking to Reggie, he'll say, you know, I never did see you. You know, I could feel you. I knew you were over here, and I'm dropping back. 
but I never, I never looked. I never saw you. Mm-hmm. Well, what strikes me about you being in, in the hall, John, is the lush history you had with the Oakland Raiders, right? Al Davis, Hall of Famer, all the Hall of Fame players you coached, mm-hmm. moments that Ed Sable has captured. Right. Um, and then the number of busts in that room of players whose games of their entire careers that you called their big games, whether they were right. Super Bowls or late window games on CBS and Fox with Summerall or you with Al Michaels, you virtually, I mean, Aikman's whole career, Reggie White's whole career, Emmett Smith's whole career. Yeah. Harry Carson. Whole career. Yeah. All those guys who were in the, in the hall, you, you had not a front row seat, but, you know, a high in the sky seat of watching these guys unfold. And, and I'm wondering if that strikes you, the different roles you have played in your, in your contribution to football and, and what you've been able to witness from well, all these Well, I knew them, you know, so when I see a, a, a player come in, I really knew him. You know, it, it wasn't because I not only did the games, but when I would do a game, I would watch film of the players and, you know, I would talk to players and coaches and go to practice. And so I, there was a little depth to it, too. It wasn't just that I remember Deion Sanders, you know, on a punt return, or I remember Shannon Sharp in a slot running the post. Uh, you know, I mean, I remember that. I remember seeing them, watching practice and how hard they worked. I, I remember, you know, plays that they made, you know, in film that I watched, and then obviously, you know, the games that I did. So when you have a Marshall Falk up there, I mean, I did a lot of those Ram no games question when, you did. when he played, and I saw, you know, everything that he could do You called the Super Bowl. You were at the Super Bowl that, that Brady, Brady right. went and got him at the yeah. end of that game. You were yeah, in the, you were the, in the booth that, for yeah. that. Yeah. It's just amazing just yeah. the different ways that you've been able to view this game from a different seat and bring it all, bring it all together. I just well, you know, I mean, I, I then just, you know the whole thing. I mean, it goes back to a fan. I mean, I was sitting and said with Bob St. Clair last night, and when I was a kid, I watched the 49ers play, and I watched Bob St. Clair play. So we have you know all the way from there. Sure. I mean, Joe Perry a year ago, John Henry Johnson, those guys. I watched those as kids, and then you have the next era that you know the guys that I coached against. You know, like we were just talking about Willie Lanier. And then the long television and guys I saw. So I really have, you know, that's why I have so much respect for him because it's something I either coached against him or I broadcast, you know, games that they played in for a very large percentage of the guys that are in this Hall of Fame. Did you need your arm twisted to go into broadcasting? I'm wondering how you got into that. Oh, hell, I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't know, you know, Nothing that I did in my life did it was planned. And uh, when I went into broadcasting, the first thing I said was, no, I didn't want to do it because, you know, I was a coach and, you know, those guys don't know anything. And, and so, <laughs> and, you know, it was kind of, you know, that coach against Brian, I don't know if it's still right. there or not. But so then someone said something to me that made sense after I turned them down. And then they offered me more money. They thought I was holding I just didn't want to do it. So then the guy said, you know, if they want you now, why don't you do it? See if you like it. Because if you ever want to do it later, they may not want you. So I used to tell players that, you know, that, you know, that, you know, young players come in and they always think about quitting. You know, training camp is tough and, you know, in two days that we used to have and mm-hmm. bad. And so the guy gets frustrated and he's thinking about quitting. I'm saying, you know, don't quit because 
you know, you can't come back. I mean, you can't come back in a year or two and say, I'm just kidding. I mean, this is kind of final. And so I kind of believed that. So when, when Barry Frank told me that, you know, try it because they may not want you later if you want to do it. So I tried it and I liked it. Who was your first play-by-play partner? Do you remember? My, my first play-by-play, I wanted to practice. So I did mm-hmm. a, a game. It was the Rams and the 49ers. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to just do a game into a tape, you know, so that Jeff. no one else heard it. Kind of like I never wanted to be Mike because I'm never sure what the heck's going to come out. <laughs> right. So anyway, the first game, you'll never guess. I mean, I could give you 20 guesses, and I was with CBS, mm-hmm. and you'd never guess who the first guy uh, that I broadcast with, but I'll tell you, Bob Costas. Is that right? Bob Costas was a young guy at CBS that time, and they had him do a no broadcast. No kidding. So, that was so the Costas first was your first play-by-play partner? Yeah, he was my, my first. But my I, mean, I was so low on the scale, I didn't have a partner. I mean, I was just a fill. And then the next, the first regular season game I did was with Frank Gleiber. Okay. But Bob Costas, that Bob Costas. I did not no, know. No. That's not a, I mean, that's, that's a Hall of Famer that well, you're getting yeah, right there. And, out of and you know, and people don't associate Bob Costas with CBS either. No, so you say CBS, not at all. So. Now, what would you consider <clears throat> your role now, John? I mean, we've talked to you, said fan and coach and, and uh, broadcaster. What, what, what would you say your role is now? Uh, you know, I'm, I'm still a big football fan. I have a, a system that, that I get every game. So I watch every game on, on, on TV from the sideline, the goal line, and the television. You have your own uh, cameras at games? Uh, or no, 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 no. I have the system that they sent me from the, so, from the league office. From the league office. <clears throat> so you're watching games from every angle? Yeah, I get every, I get every, every game. So you get the coaching tape? I get every, yeah, I get every game from every angle uh, every week. And so the first play... The first play would be the play from coach's sideline. Mm-hmm. The second play is coach's end zone. Mm-hmm. And the third play is television. Every game. Right. And why do you, why do you want to do that? Just because just you're crazy? <laughs> <laughs> just because, you know, that's who I am, what I am. And then, then when I watch the games, I have a, a studio where I have a big screen in the middle. Then I have nine 63-inch monitors mm-hmm. around it. So I have, I have every game. I have every game on it's TV. It's a dream. It's so a fan's I, I, dream it right is, there. It is a fan's dream. And, who do you watch and that the games was my with? dream. Who do you watch the games with? Anyone that wants to come. Because it's, uh, in a big, it's in a, like a big warehouse thing that I do it. So you have I, just friends, family, just yeah, come yeah, and, and people, hang with you? People. I had uh, a bunch of quarterback fathers one time. And uh, and fantastic. Uh, yeah, the commissioner was there with me one day. Uh huh. Do you miss calling the games? Do you? Yeah, I do miss it because, you know, if if you really enjoyed something you were doing, you know, and you enjoyed every part of it, I enjoyed the travel, the watching films, the talking to players, the going to practices, doing the games, camaraderie with my group, you know, and Al Michaels, and then your you know producer Fred Goodelli, Dreskov. You know, Bob Stenner saying, I mean, that whole group, I, I enjoyed that team, too, and I miss mm-hmm. that. So if you really enjoy it and then you don't do it anymore and say say you don't miss it, then you're kind of kidding one way or another. Either you really didn't enjoy it or you really do miss it. Mm-hmm. But having said that, I don't want to go back. I mean, I, I, I miss it, and I loved it, but 
I don't want to do it again. Right, because I guess instead of sitting on your bus traveling to a game, when your grandkids come walking in the door, that's that's game, set, and match. Well, yeah, and, right and my grandkids come every week. I mean, they may be riding a skateboard around the, the thing, but they're there, they're there watching the games every Fantastic. week. Fantastic. Well, a lot of people miss you in the booth. They do, yeah. and um, that's why I couldn't be more happy to have you here so you can give your thoughts. Do you have any thoughts on the playing season at this point in time with what the Eagles uh, just done? Or do, yeah, do I, you... think, I think it's going to take a while to sort out. Uh, you know, it's kind of like musical chairs, and you have to wait until the music stops to see where everyone is. But I really believe with no off-season programs, that no one and no you know, free agent signings in the offseason or none of that activity, that, that the teams that were good at the end of the season are going to be the teams that were good at the start of the season. Packers, Jets. And, yeah, the Packers, because if for no other reason, you take the Packers and the Steelers, for example, mm-hmm. they had uh, six weeks or seven weeks more of practice mm-hmm. and game time last year than teams that didn't make the playoffs. So that's like having an off-season program, and that's an advantage. So I think the established teams that had good coaches with good quarterbacks are the, the teams you have to start with. And, you know, I mean, that would be the Packers and the Patriots and the Steelers. It's fascinating because normally, John, though, that, that grind, that playoff grind, normally when the playing season starts again – uh, has worn on a team in a way. Has but, been a disadvantage. Right, but now yeah. you're saying because of the lockout this year, yeah. those extra six weeks of actual game action and preparation will actually come in handy. It'll be a big advantage. I mean, it's going to do more than come in handy. It's going to be a big advantage. It's the old thing that they say about you know college teams. When you go to a bowl game, you get an extra spring practice. Mm-hmm. So these guys got an extra spring practice and they didn't have to pay for it because they didn't have to go through off-season programs. Do you think any of these rookie quarterbacks who may get thrown in the mix are going to be effective this they year? They don't have a chance. Really? There's no way. There's no way. I mean, you know, that, I, mean I hear you can simplify a game plan. In, you know, that, I mean, I think it's tough. it's tough for anyone in their first, second, or third year. And then when you add to that that they didn't have any training at all, and they're just learning from the ground up. And with these defenses and the athletes that are playing today and the things they can do to you, I, I, I really can't see that they have a chance. And how about in your old own backyard with the Raiders? How do you think that they're going to look this year with Hugh Jackson at the controls and Jason Campbell clearly being the starting quarterback there now? I think, I think they're going to be better, uh, but... Uh, they still have a way to go to get back to, to championship level, I would think. Mm-hmm. Any other thoughts on the on the season? Can you make a Super Bowl prediction right now, or just is too much up in the air? And you know, I was much- I was one of those guys that always believed that a champion's a champion until you beat them. You know, the old fight thing of the sure. guys, that, you know, champion. And if you got to if you're going to be the champion, you got to you got to take his belt away from him. And and I really feel strongly about the Green Bay Packers because. Um, you know, they have good coaching staff. They have good systems. They have a good quarterback and Aaron Rodgers. They, they, they were good at the end of the year. They had injuries that they're going to get players back. And, and, you know, I mean, if I were forced to, but I would say that, I mean, back in the day before a lot of free agency, I used to say that all the time that, you know, the team that ended up 
you know, the best at the end is going to be the team that starts. And, and I never felt more strongly than I do about the Packers. John, year. it's an honor to have you on this podcast. I'd love to phone you up during the playing season every now and then and <laughs> chat with you. Thanks yeah, anytime, Rich. Excellent. Yeah, I'd love to. Terrific. Love John, to thanks. Okay. The one Thank and only you. John Madden here on the Rich Eisen podcast. Please now have on the Rich Eisen podcast one of the greatest offensive linemen to ever lace them up. Canton class of 1998. That I cannot comprehend, Anthony Munoz. 1998. That is how long it has been. It's been a long time. It's good to see you. Great seeing you. Thanks Thanks for having me. Please, thanks for coming on. I mean, do you think, let's just start macro, do you think offensive linemen get enough credit in the history of this game? You know, I think it's starting to happen. It started to happen the last several years. I think uh, back even when I was playing, you know, management coaches thought, well, okay, we'll just kind of replace them. And, it, you know, not that important. But then all of a sudden, you know, the quarterback realized that that left tackle was very important and all the rest of the guys because, uh, you know, the guys on the defensive side were getting uh, maybe a little bit bigger but a lot faster. And uh, you know, I think you look at uh, – and if, if pay has anything to do with it, I think you look at the pay and, and what's going on. And they're realizing we need to pay these big guys a little more because right. of the importance of their job. Do you think you should get a cut? From some uh, of these guys' uh, pays, you know Anthony? What, uh, I mean, you see what the left tackles look like well, right now. You know, I just, uh, every time I go home, I slap my mom because she had me so early. But no, <laughs> <laughs> I'm, just I'm just kidding. You know what? I'm thrilled that they're finally getting uh, what they deserve. You know, I'm not going to complain. I made, uh, for what I was able to do for 13 years, I made some pretty good money. But, uh, you know, I was just, uh, you know, I retired. And I think that next year the free agency kicked in and the money started to, to get a little bigger. Of course, now it's... Uh, it's pretty good for those left tackles. When you're here in Canton, who are you excited to see? Who really, do you... all of them. Uh, you know, one of the guys that uh, you know really became a close friend of and, and just a phenomenal individual, and that was Merlin Olson. Uh, you know, I remember back to, of course, growing up in L.A. when he was playing, but then that voice, uh, you know, in his broadcasting years, and uh, you know, as a guy that I just admired, uh, and then you meet him, and the guy's just a phenomenal person, but. You know, last night, uh, you know, I had my camera at the, at the dinner, and you know, as we were getting ready to be introduced at the, the jacket the affair, I'm, I'm taking pic- pictures with all the guys. So, I mean, you know, and even defensive players like me and Joe Green and, and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But I, I love just being around the guys and hearing stories. I mean, for me, I love the game. I love the history of the game, and any time I get a chance to hear about guys I just heard about, like Papa Bear Hallis and guy that was, at, you know, when I got to Cincinnati, Paul Brown and... Vince Lombardi, all of a sudden you're sitting there hearing the stories of guys that played for these guys, and it's just like, wow. Right, so excited to see all the guys. Do you feel that way even if you see Montana here, Anthony? You know what, I get over it. Initially, I, you know, I still have that nightmare. And, uh, you know, okay, settle down. It's been a long time. And, uh, you know, I, he comes in in a suit, and I just see the number 16 on yeah. him. But, uh, yeah, he's the only guy that I, I have nightmares when I come <laughs> I to camp. Thanks for bringing it no, up. No, I mean, would you imagine? I went through four years of counseling, and you bring it up. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> I just want to see if the counseling worked. Because, yeah, I mean, a lot of Bengals fans always talk about the glory years and your glory years. It would have been good i think one of the times you get to the super bowl well, and think, he's not there i think twice i think both times because i know you remember you know even in 16 it was their first and uh you know that second half we were rolling we we're going and then he just did enough in that second half mm-hmm. but uh you know especially in 23 i mean you know here we're leading the entire game and i mean who would have thought you know 92 yards uh, and our defense had play, been playing you know pretty well yeah you know, what, less than three minutes, and, okay, come on, hold them, and you're sitting on that sideline, and here they go. And, uh, 
but yeah, it, it's one of those things where, uh, you know, you have, uh, I don't even know who their backup quarterback was at the time. I don't even know either. <laughs> that's one of those things that you, you, you know, know you put that guy, it's a trivia it, question. Wasn't John Brody, was it? Uh, <laughs> no, that's but, right. I know. But, you just uh, sort of you forget. Know, so you eliminate 16, I think we have a pretty good chance. Right. I know. Uh, who was the guy when you were playing on the other side of the ball that you knew you're playing him on Sunday, you had to bring especially your A game. Who was that guy for you? Well, let, me see. Let, me, let me Fred Dean, Leroy Simmons, Bruce Smith, um, you know, Sean Jones. Uh, let me think with Clyde Simmons. Let me think of which guy it was at uh, Elvin Bethea. You know, probably because I faced him the most, it had to be Bruce Smith. Uh, I mean, I knew uh, from when he got in the league and I was, you know, up probably what, Midway through my career, a little more than that, uh, you could see as a young player, he, a beast. he had it. He, he a had beast. It. What, 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 what did he well, have? That, uh, I mean, size, quickness. I mean, and then, then he realized, okay, I'm not going to be a 280-pound defensive. I'm going to get down to about 260, get in great shape, and then make it even tougher for those big guys. Uh, you know, he just got it. And, uh, you know, so he was the entire package. A lot of times you faced a guy that was a you know, pretty good pass rusher, but maybe against a run he wasn't at the level well you knew that Bruce Smith you know was at the highest level against the run against the pass and you really had to be on your A game every single play and you couldn't take a break mm. how how um, how much does the memory of the game and uh, creep into your daily routine oh constantly constantly i mean it's just it was such a great uh, 13 years memory, I mean, just a, a lifetime of memories from games to relationships, you know, guys I played against, guys I played with, uh, you know, so, you know, when, when you've done something for so long, it's just part of life, and, you know, and it, I kind of chuckle because people will start asking questions, they'll say, I'm sorry that I'm asking football questions. Well, I mean, don't be sorry because I'm sure you're in a business that I don't know a whole lot about. I'm going to ask you questions about your business. So uh, I love talking about the game. I love what I had, you know, the experiences I had in the NFL. So it's it's probably on a daily basis that uh, those memories come up. Well, I'd love to talk with you about the, the current state of the Cincinnati Bengals, Anthony. Um, starting with the first question, I'll ask you the question that people always ask me. What, what happened with Carson Palmer? So are you having a good time in Canton? (laughs) (laughs) You want to change the subject? Well, you know, it's interesting because, you know, I do the preseason games. I'm a season ticket holder. I live in Cincinnati. And looking from the outside, the inside as a former player, I think there's uh, several things that, you know, came into his decision. I mean, the fact that, you know, he was dealing with, you know, some – you know, some other players that he's had. You know, the quarterback deals with everything. The guy is a leader. He's a guy that controls everything. Um, I mean, the guy's been beat up the last three years. I mean, when you get a broken nose in the preseason, <laughs> then you get the knee, you get the, you know, the elbow. So physically, I'm sure he's uh, beat down, mentally beat down. And then, uh, of course, you know, from what I understand, the whole coaching situation. Uh, you know, I heard he went in and, you know, everybody thought that there was going to be a coaching change, clean house, and, you know, they bring in a coordinator, but they keep the staff, most of the staff, on the offensive side. So reading from the outside in, I think all of those things uh, really, uh, you know, played a part in saying, I'm going to retire or trade me. Really, he's got one option. He's going to retire because they're not going to trade him. That's the whole thing. Because don't you think, because they, they finally did trade Ocho. 
right? They finally did they give did. The, yeah. him the exit visas yeah. that, that he's been clamoring for for right. years, right? right? So if he is one of those unnamed players that you had mentioned that Carson had been he's dealing with. He's one of those okay. named players. Okay. Said, he's one of those <laughs> yeah. So he's gone. T.O.'s yeah. not coming back if he's another one of those yeah. players. Uh, okay. So, okay, if, you know, but so all those guys go, but he refuses to let Carson Palmer go. Yeah. I mean, why, why well, wouldn't he get okay, again, picks for him? Reading, and I agree with you. I mean, here's a guy that doesn't want to be in your, a part of your organization, so why not get, get something that's going to help you hopefully win some football games? I guess looking at it again, the difference, here's a guy that if he wants to be there, you know, you have him on your football team, he fits into the chemistry of, the, of, of what they're trying to do. I think the other guys are distractions that he gets rid of. So to me, that's, that's what is happening here. Plus, you know, that's an organization that you don't demand things from. You don't back them into a corner because uh, help the team, not help the team. They're going to do what they want, and that's what he wants to do, and uh, he's going to do that. And so there's one option for Carson. Do you think Andy Dalton's the guy? You know what? For, I, think, I believe for what they're going to run offensively, I think he has a chance to, to really fit in uh, after some experience. Uh, with uh, at least, I don't know a whole lot about Gruden, but from what I hear, because they do still have some offensive staff that's been there, they're going to you know, run basically a lot of the, the West Coast offense type, getting back to the basic West Coast, and I think that's a, a system that fits Andy Dalton. Now, you're not just here uh, for, for part of your Hall of Fame uh, duties or just hanging out with your Hall of Famers. You're also part of the NFL's uh, committee, correct? on player safety is that right. and you're just meeting with the commissioner and another guest on the podcast here john madden uh what what are you what are you guys talking about in there anthony it's top secret if i tell you john look out, here look we out. both have to take you okay. and i have to find a new host so we can't <laughs> that, we can't please no. do not do that i mean you uh, know it, it's a great game it's been a great game we want the game continue to be great and of course the committee's led by you know john madden and ronnie lot of the co-chairs and of course you have the commissioner and but then you have other, you know, players, former players, coaches. And, and you know, we're just trying to look at the league and, and, and look at the, you know, safety of the players and, but continue the game to, to you know, it's, like I said, it's, a, it's been a great game. It's a great game. And to continue that way. Uh, and, you know, and I mentioned our meeting, John said, you know, we don't want to tell the players what they can't do. It's like, okay, let's, let's look at what we have to, to really be cautious, you know, look at that's not right or unsafe and then say, here's what we can do. And, uh, I think that's a great philosophy that Coach Madden brings. And so we're looking at the game and, and saying, okay, how can we continue to improve this game but have it uh, a safe game? But you hear so many players saying that the, all the commissioner wants is just to take their money, <laughs> that they really don't have, the league does not have the player's true best interest in mind, and that the game's turning soft because of all this. Well, how would you, as a former player who's on this committee, respond? What I would say is when you get a Hall of Fame coach, John Madden, Hall of Fame player Ronnie Lott, then you'd get former players and former coaches to come in and say, okay, here's what we need to look at. I think that speaks volumes for the commissioner and his staff to say, we're not going to make all these decisions, but we're going to take recommendations from these guys. And, you know, I, I constantly hear they're trying to change the game. No, just go back to the basics and doing things the way they should be. And I think it still can be a great game if you're technically sound and, and play the game. It's meant to be physical. It's meant to, to try to dominate the guy on the other side. Uh, it, they're not trying to change the game. They're just trying to, to allow you to play the game with, with the gifts you have and, and continue to, to have it be a physical football game.
I guess if they had that committee back in your playing days, your left pinky would look like Why, what's that. wrong with that? I'm, I'm, I'm just saying. I'm not, I mean, I mean, I'm just, I mean, look, I'm just. Maybe you can give me a record. I play golf. Yeah. I've yet to find a pro shop that has a 2X glove <laughs> where the pinky goes out. I tell you. <laughs> the perpendicular maybe you can, pinky yeah. 2X glove does not exist. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, boy. <laughs> Good to see Anthony. Great Thanks so much for coming on my right, podcast. My pleasure. That is Thank the one you. and only Anthony Munoz on the Rich Eisen podcast. Yeah. Now I am excited on this uh, podcast to have two all-time greats. We're going to get in the trenches. Here we are in a in a time when one of the great St. Louis Rams and Marshall Falks going in. We have two of the all-time great Los Angeles Rams, old school, big-time football players. 20 years in the game on the offensive line. Jackie Slater, good to have you on the Rich Eisen good podcast. To be here, good to see bitch. you. And out there is uh, one of the all time great, gutsiest defensive linemen of all time, an author coming out in October, book because yeah. it was Sunday, coming out on October 1st. Jack Youngblood, good to see you. Thanks, Rich. Uh, I, I'm so, I, this is like a snapshot that. Um, I know so many friends of mine living out in Los Angeles would envy. So I'm taking a mental picture right now, seeing you two guys together. Uh, Jackie, what is it like to be here with Jack Youngblood? Well, it's right it's fantastic. Fantastic. I, I got so many memories when I think about this guy right here. It's, it's unbelievable. And, you know, the interesting, really interesting thing about the relationship that I feel, the professional relationship that I feel that I had with Jack is that, you know, I think he was the guy that taught me what it took to be special in this league. I mean, you think about it. You come to practice every day for three years in a row, and in one-on-one pass blocking drills, team situations, you got to go against a guy like this who is, at this point in time in his career, primed, knows what he wants, knows how to get there, knows how to work on sharpening his skills. And I mean, he literally beat me. Almost, almost every day. I mean, I'm. I know. I know. He don't want to admit it. Tori's getting better. He doesn't want to admit this. He doesn't want to admit this. But I mean, I had to learn to survive in practice every day. And I mean, what better way for a young offensive lineman to 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 learn the art of his craft than blocking, trying to block somebody who who's already on top of theirs? And so I was very, very lucky that way. Don't you dare sit there and say you didn't, man. <laughs> well, you know how these things, the older we get, the, the better they get. We can, oh boy. When I, I first saw Jackie Ray and he came in and, I, and I'm thinking to myself, well, you know, maybe we did draft somebody pretty good this year and, and, and get it right. You know, when we got us a, a right tackle. Um, and after after the first couple of snaps, I went, yeah, we got it right. We go, <laughs> we we got us a good one here, and and then we we developed a relationship over the, over the, the that first three years, and um, where the mentality was, we make each other better. The harder we work on our skills together, will benefit on Sundays. Wednesdays and Thursdays and, and um, you know, Mondays and Tuesdays. But the Wednesdays and Thursdays will make us better the harder we work together. And created a relationship, you know, because he wanted to be better and I wanted to be better every day too. You know, Rich, i got to add something. What Jack, he just made me think of something. What is that? I can remember, and this was one of the simple pleasures that I enjoyed when I was playing and practicing against him. We go to St. Louis, and I'm sitting on the bench right here, and I can see the whole field. 
And I don't want to embarrass this guy because I got a lot of respect for him. His name is Tootie Robbins. Mm-hmm. He was the starting right tackle with the St. Louis Cardinals. And I sit there and I watch that game because there wasn't any. I could watch the whole game from where I was sitting. And I systematically watched Jack use every one of his patented moves on this guy. And he just, he ate the guy a lot. In fact, in fact, if there was ever one game, and Jack, Jack might not want to admit this, but if there was ever one game, would you look at it and you would say, well, this game was determined by the play of the defensive end going against the right tackle. If you go and look at that tape, what year was that? You remember? Oh. I can't remember what I year it was. But he, he, he systematically took control of the game. And at the, in, the, in the fourth quarter, you, I don't know how many sacks he had, but in the fourth quarter, he ended up blocking a field goal mm-hmm. to win the game. And there's Tootie standing there. Now, Tootie was bigger than me at the time. This guy had to, he, what was it, about 330? Yeah. About 330? Huge. And Jack was just, all the stuff that had happened to me for three years, I, I sit there and I watch <laughs> You thank goodness he's abusing somebody on the other team. I said to myself, Tootie, you should have been practicing against him. <laughs> You'd have been a little bit better. Uh, Jack, I would assume the person who helped instill in you what Jackie is communicating, would that be Deacon Jones? Deacon and Merlin. Deacon and Merlin. I, had, I, had, I was fortunate enough to, to have Deacon for one year. And, um, and, and Merlin for six. Um, and, and Deacon put his arm around me and, and you know, a rookie coming in, you know, in, in, in those years in 1971, that's, that's a sign, you know, you, a first-round draft choice, and that, that could be jeopardy to my job. Uh, but Deacon didn't look at it that way. He, he, he put his arm around me literally and said, kid, here's how we, here's how we do it. This is the way it's done at our level. And showed me all of the all the intricacies of, of how to play defensive end in the National Football League. Did that include a head slap? Did any of that include Absolutely. a head slap? Absolutely. One hundred percent. One hundred percent. The thing about most people don't re- don't recognize the head slap was is it sounds vicious, it sounds in, in, intimidating, but it was it was it, it's sleight of hand. That's what it is. You just want to you want to turn his head and make him blink, so that you can do something else. If he can't see you, he can't block you, and that's what the head slap was about. Just just turn his head just a little bit. Now, if he got just if, a little if, bit. He, if the opponent gets a little ugly, then you you might increase the <laughs> the pressure. The pressure. The pressure. <laughs> You don't like the head slap, I imagine, Jack. No, I didn't. Fortunately for me, it, it, it became an outlawed uh, asset for a defensive line most of my career. But that didn't mean that guys didn't inadvertently use it. <laughs> yes. and, and I concluded early on that that's exactly what they were trying to do. They wanted me to blink, and as I blink, they do, they do something, and something that I wasn't prepared to deal right. with. Right. And so what I learned to do, especially in light of the fact that they liberated the rules so we could play with long extended arms mm-hmm. and try to hit guys as they breached our range instead of absorbing them and then pushing them away, was to kind of counter uh, their hand action as it came towards your face or towards your body. And, right. and that way you, you never really lost sight of, uh, of them and what they were trying to do. Can you, what was the best game that you guys were ever involved in? Starting with you, Jack. Was, would it be, I know even though you lost the Super Bowl, uh, would, would it be that big game, Super Bowl fourteen? That was a good one. That was certainly because you know we we finally had arrived, and we had the door shut in our face. You know four times previous to that, uh, 
and got to the to that pinnacle game. Um, I look back. I look back on on the Seattle game in 1978. Seven. Was it 77? Yeah, I think so. When we we held them to a minus seven yards. Minus seven yards. Total offense. It still stands today. Yeah. It, it's, it's very rare that teams go backwards for an backwards. entire four minus, quarters. Think about that. Minus seven yards. Our defense yeah. held them. I mean, we 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 literally dominated that. Yes, <laughs> yeah, a little, little bit. <laughs> was it 77 or 78? I can't I keep them straight anymore. Yeah, yeah, me, too, me either. What about you, Jackie? Well, I'll, I'll never forget the Super Bowl. Uh, and the reason why I'll never forget it is because this was my first year actually in the starting lineup. And uh, I had always been one of those guys that uh, really wanted to work hard and practice. And, and there were some guys that didn't, didn't like to practice hard. And, 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 and I, was, I felt a little uncomfortable at times about just the effort I was putting into practice. But I remember uh, going into that season, I twisted my ankle. I had a high ankle sprain. And the guys, some of the guys who really wanted to have a good football team came to check on me and make sure I was going to be okay and be able to play in the games. And and that was when I really felt like, hey, these guys aren't just mad at me because I'm beating them up, but these guys care whether or not I'm going to make a contribution. They want me to be there to make a contribution. So that really made me feel good. By the time we got to the Super Bowl, I was rolling pretty good in my first year as a starter. And I remember uh, playing that game, and I remember coming in the locker room after that game, and I remember looking around the locker room, and there were guys, the guys who were the very most upset about us having lost that game were the guys who made little mistakes here and there that perhaps caused us a chance to win it. And I remember sitting there, and I felt guilty sitting there on that stool feeling pretty content because I didn't let the guy with the gold shoes dance over the quarterback. L.C. Greenwood with the gold shoes. You know, he'd go to the Super Bowls, get the sacks, and he didn't dance over the quarterback. And then I later, uh, subsequently, some years later, John Madden put together an NFL all-time Super Bowl team. And he flew me down there with all these NFL greats as a representative on that team as a right tackle who he said played the best Super Bowl game that he ever saw. And I, and I remember feeling that way, but I, you know, I, it was dampered by the fact that we had lost the game. But to have John come along later and say that, it, was, it just put a punctuation mark on that special, special day for me. And that day, Jack, you also earned your stripes in a way that you'd already known as a tough football player but that day in particular playing in that Super Bowl culminating an entire playoff drive in which you had a broken leg right. broken fibula right well snap fibula uh, I mean how how did you do that <laughs> how did you do that Jack I don't know <laughs> <laughs> there are times when I look back and I'm thinking what in the world was I doing well, you know <laughs> what was I thinking oh man um, but that was just, that's old school mentality. You know, if you, Granddaddy taught me a long time ago, if you're gonna, if you're gonna do something, you're gonna do it, you're gonna do it right, and you're gonna do it to the finish. And you're gonna get it done. But a broken fibula, though? I mean, come on, man. I mean, that, <laughs> that, that, it didn't hurt? I mean, didn't you feel it? Oh, or? yeah. I mean, it was, it was excruciating pain, there's no question. Um, but I still had, I still had about three quarters, you know, of, of, of the talent there. If there's any regret about the 14 years that I've played, I regret the fact that I had to be, I had to go into the game that we, 
for 14 years we were trying to, to achieve and be injured the most, the, the, the biggest injury that I had ever had in my career, um, and it'd be the Super Bowl 14. But that, it's the ultimate, you, you can only control what you can control. I mean, you just had a broken leg and yeah. it's no, yeah. no fault of yours. You know, I, I, mean, I, I just, <laughs> I mean, my, it, my mentality was simple. It was that if I can contribute to the football team being, as, being captain, that was my responsibility. And I wanted to do that. And the coaches knew that I would definitely, if I'm, if I'm a detriment to, the game, to, to our team, I'm coming out. I'll pull myself out. I know that. So what do you think when you see players today uh, just walk mm. off the field and they're, you know, they, you don't know there could be a meniscus going on. <clears throat> Obviously, you know, let's, I don't want to call him out because he got called out enough, Jay Cutler, but it did turn out that his knee was torn up in the NFC Championship game. Mm. I'm just keen to know what your, your thought would be, Jack, when you hear that sort of stuff. The fact that he didn't go back upsets me. The fact that he and then and then was not involved in the game afterwards. He's sitting on the. I mean, the the camera went back to him several times. He's over on the, on the bench without with the, with earphones in. I don't know. I don't know what he was listening to. But that's unheard of in our day. And, and I hope he was listening to the plays being called. Please be. I don't think it was his iPod. Please, huh? I don't think he was listening to somebody's greatest hits or anything. Like that. But it wasn't. But you didn't see any emotion. You didn't see any any intensity there. You didn't see any passion. And and, and not just him, but there's, there's there's I see it all the time. And I I I get in trouble for saying these kind of things. But when a player, when a, a defensive lineman goes in, he plays two plays, and he holds his hands up and comes out of a ball game, and it's, it's third and eight. I'm tired. I can't play. What do you, what do you mean you can't play? It's third and eight. <laughs> it's your job to stop the football team, go rush the passer. But no, they don't do that anymore. Yeah, we're just talking about that with uh, John Madden about um, rotations. Specialization. Yeah. And things of that nature. Uh, yeah, but we're talking to a coach. Mm. Talking to a coach there. See, the, the philosophy has changed yeah, he, on how this game right. is. Being yeah, he was played. not. He's not a fan of it either. I, uh, John was not a fan. Of I'm it. not. I'd just be glad when they get some of that specialization on the offensive line. Mm. No, you're you the only one. You, you never see an offensive lineman come out on third and long. No, if they had to take me out on third and long, I'd played another ten years. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, you played thirty years. <laughs> what was I got to ask this question? What was it like playing football in Los Angeles in the mid seventies and late seventies? What in the world was that like? Jackie had a uh, he had a contingent of of. I can't see that. <laughs> <laughs> I, I want to know what you were saying. It was interesting. Admirers. Was interesting I, let's put it this way. You had a contingency of admirers that followed you around. Yeah, it was really, it, it was really a different environment. I didn't have a contingency. First of all, you got to understand who made that statement, okay? This is Jack Youngblood in Los Angeles, right? And he had, he had the moniker. Someone tried to hang the, the moniker on him. Uh, 
what was it? Hollywood handsome and Dodge City tough. And that was that's what who that was who he was. I mean, and you know the interesting thing about it, and I don't know if if a lot of people remember this, Jack, like you and I, but our owner at that time. He, uh, he he was connected in Hollywood somehow, mm-hmm. and we mm-hmm. had guys like Don Rickles uh, on our flight entertaining us, coming along for the trips, and and we were staying at the Beverly Hills uh, Beverly Hills Hotel up there, right. and and all these actors and actresses were coming through there, and I, I remember going up there just sitting in the lobby before our meetings and just watching them go by. I mean, it was it was we were Hollywood. I mean, these guys were in movies in the off season. I even did a movie. Where I was, they gave me $500, I was in this movie, and then, this was in 1977, and in 1994, I got a residual check for three <laughs> times as much as what they gave me. <laughs> I couldn't believe it, but everybody was working in Hollywood, there was all kinds of things happening in L.A., and, and the people back in Mississippi, my relatives thought it was too big of a town for me to be in, and, and I just adapted, and I just grew, and I watched these guys, and uh, it was a real fun time. Real fun time to be playing. It's a learning experience when you come from two two small towns in in Mississippi and in North Florida and they they take you out of out of the small town environment and throw you into LA. You know, and and LA's a world. It's not just another city. That's that's a world to us. It was in it was you had to you had to be careful. You had to you had to be very careful. And you know the other thing is the other thing is we were probably as big a time organization mm-hmm. in pro football as it was. I mean, our owner, Kel Rosenblum, was, he sparkled, I mean, in his interactions with other owners, as I viewed it. And, and not only that, but he had a personal touch. I remember him coming through the locker rooms. I would go to the locker room early, Jack and all the guys, the veterans, would be there early. He would come to that locker room, and he'd walk through that locker room and even put his hands on a guy like my shoulders who was there as a backup my first three years to say, you ready? You know, made me feel like, hey, I've been watching you and I know you're a part of what's going on and, and uh, I want to know if you're ready. And, you know, it was encouraging when you had that kind of a, a guy crawling in the locker room. Oh, yeah. Didn't you think that? Yeah, yeah. He, uh, he was one of the first owners well, in, in, that, we, that we experienced that, that literally took a, took a role um, in the welfare and the well-being of individual players he he loved us all loved us all one other thing too i think of this we had to have had the best medical staff in, oh, the, yeah. in the country bar the, none because it was los angeles well or? well look at who we had we had we had the curlum joe medical group people right. from all over the country go out there and still get, even to still. get surgery to yeah. this day right that yeah. that outfit uh, we had uh, our internist was Toby Friedman. He just passed away right. not long right. ago, and he Bless was he was one of the chief uh, physicians on the um, NASA space program. I mean, on the, it was, on the it, first on the first group. Yeah, yeah. no was, I mean, we, we 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 had the best. And Don Rickles on the plane. And Don, Don Rickles, Rickles on the plane telling <laughs> jokes. Man, we had we had a blast. Fantastic. I mean, it just this doesn't happen anymore. You know what I mean? And literally, yeah. it doesn't happen anymore. Especially when you're, you're talking about. Los Angeles. I mean, can you believe that there's no, there hasn't been football in Los Angeles for as long as it's been, and that people wonder if Los Angeles could will support ever, a team? Will, will ever support one again? Do you think? You, what, well, what are, you, what are your thoughts on the potential return? It's economics. It's, a, it's economics. You got to you got to have somebody that that can afford to to, to invest two billion dollars, and 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 then make make it work. Because you got to have you got to have a stadium, and that's at least a billion, mm-hmm. and and a new franchise. Uh, 
you know, if you, if you, if you go to the, the expansion route, it's going to at least be that, if not more. So in, in, then moving one, you know, there's going to be a large investment there. But the stadium is, is the key issue. Well, I, I, I agree with what Jack just said 100%. It's going to be a monumental investment for someone to come in there and do that. But this is what I know. Okay. After spending 19 years in Southern California in the L.A. area playing football, there's a nucleus of fans there who are clamoring for pro football. I know that. I also know that there's a commissioner who's in place right now who is making some bold statements. Some of the things that, uh, that I, we just recently became enlightened to about this new collective bargaining agreement are downright bold statements uh, from the league office. And everything that I have heard is coming directly from the commissioner. This guy wants football, I believe, back in Los Angeles. He, he is probably, I mean, I got to know C- Commissioner Tagliabue, and I actually knew uh, Commissioner uh, Pete Rosell as well. And, uh, and I've gotten to you know, know Roger just a little bit from the media and from what I've, what I've read and everything. And this guy is really all about the game of football. He wants to see pro football be not only a national sport, but be a worldwide sport. And from everything that I'm hearing, he understands how this large, what is it, second largest? Yep. Second largest. Yep. Market. Market, market in it. He understands that. And I believe... 15, 16 million people. You look at all the costs. I know it's going to be a big nut to crack, but I believe he's going to get it done. Well, I, I can attest, living there, have, have for the last eight years, no question, L.A. fans love the NFL and love football and would want them back. A lot of them want the Rams back. A lot of... Do you know how many, do you know how many people watch St. Louis Rams games? in Los Angeles. It really is remarkable. Yeah. All the folks well, they who, should, who watched Because that's, the, that's their legacy. That's their team. Their legacy was moved, was, was transferred to St. Louis. I mean, in, I, I, I step back every now and then thinking that, you know, that, that St. Louis would, would embrace the, their, their history, their legacy, even more so than what they, what they have in St. Louis. And I understand the marketing thing and all that. But, um, you know, that's, that's, that's who they are. Jackie, Jackie Ray Slater, you know, established the Rams so they could move to St. Louis. I mean, he's part of that, that legacy that's not being recognized, really, that much. Well, I, I was fortunate. I was really, I was put in a really interesting, allowed myself, I put myself in a really interesting position in that, um, I played for what I thought was a great nucleus of fans in Los Angeles for 19 years. Okay, even before they even knew I was on the roster, I thought they were pretty good fans. And then I got to go to St. Louis to play my last year when the team moved there. Now, the thing that surprised me, and I don't know if it's just because everybody wanted to see the old guy get the 20th year in or whatever, but when I went to St. Louis, the people in St. Louis they seemed like they were really happy to have the team. They encouraged, they encouraged me. They were pulling for me, the old guy trying to get the 20 years in. And they generally uh, received the team and, and, and it, its history that it was bringing along with it very well back there at that time. Uh, I know a lot of guys in Los Angeles, former teammates of mine, very, they were very disappointed that the team would move. 
and they were very disappointed that they there's not a real uh, alliance with uh, the, the, the 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 players that are in the LA area now, like having them do things in St. Louis and everything. But I've talked to a couple of people, like the, that new owner, uh, Stan Kroenke. Sam. Stan Kroenke, and this guy, you know, this guy, he understands what Jack just said. He understands that, and he seems to have a passion for for bridging the gap. So I think there's optimism there that there's going to probably be some things going on, Jack. Don't be Good. surprised if Jack is not vice Good. president of player personnel or something uh, in the next three years. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, it's, this has been awesome, guys. Uh, so much fun chatting. Uh, before we go, let's pop your book. Why'd you write a book, Jack? Why are you writing this book? Because it was Sunday. Well, you, you, you like to have, you know, you like to have it down and we, we can talk about a lot of things, but when it's written down, it makes it real. Um, and I wanted, I wanted to rehash um, why I did this, some of these things and where they came from. What were the principles behind it? Uh, what was the driving force um, for me to do, to move from, <clears throat> from, a, from a skinny 195-pound kid in, in, in Monticello, Florida, to Los Angeles and, and, and play that as long as I did? <clears throat> for... For not only my, you know, my family and, and for the record, but, you know, down the road, maybe that it'll inspire some child, you know, to, to say, well, Mr. Youngblood said, you know, when you start something, you, you, you're going to finish it and you're going to do it to the best of your ability. And maybe it'll change you. Thanks for coming on, guys. Good. Pleasure. This Good. has been an absolute pleasure. pleasure Jackie Slater. Jack Youngblood right here on the Rich Eisen Podcast. How cool was that? Jackie Slater, Jack Youngblood, John Madden, Jim Kelly, and Anthony Munoz. I hope you enjoyed this stroll down memory lane and also these guys giving their thoughts on contemporary National Football League action. Next week, the podcast back in studio in Los Angeles. Adam Carolla will be my guest next week. We'll switch things up. Thanks for watching this edition of the Rich Eisen Podcast. And you can always download the entire archives of the podcast on iTunes and richeisen.nfl.com. Peace out. Booyah from Canton, Ohio. Stay listening to 